Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Swans, and today is the 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who caused the minds of the faithful to unite in a single purpose, grant your people to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that amid the uncertainties of this world, our hearts may be fixed on that place where true gladness is found. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the prophet Isaiah. The Lord says this, I am coming to gather the nations of every language. They shall come to witness my glory. I will give them a sign and send some of their survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pat, Lud, Moshek, Rosh, Tubal, and Jaban, to the distant islands that have never heard of me or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory to the nations. As an offering to the Lord, they will bring all your brothers on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, on dromedaries, from all the nations, to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord, like Israelites, bringing oblations in clean vessels to the temple of the Lord. And some of them I will make priests and Levites, says the Lord. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go out to all the world and tell the good news. Go out to all the world and tell the good news. O praise the Lord, all you nations. Acclaim him, all you peoples. Go out to all the world and tell the good news. Strong is his love for us. He is faithful forever. Go out to all the world and tell the good news. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Have you forgotten that encouraging text in which you are addressed as sons? My son, when the Lord corrects you, do not treat it lightly, but do not get discouraged when he reprimands you. For the Lord trains the ones that he loves, and he punishes all those that he acknowledges as his sons. Suffering is part of your training. God is treating you as his sons. Has there ever been any son whose father did not train him? Of course, any punishment is most painful at the time and far from pleasant. But later in those on whom it has been used, it bears fruit in peace and goodness. So hold up your limp arms and steady your trembling knees and smooth out the path you tread. Then the injured limb will not be trenched, it will grow strong again. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. I am the way, the truth and the life, says the Lord. No one comes to the Father except through me. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Through towns and villages, Jesus went teaching, making his way to Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Sir, 
Will there be only a few saved? He said to them, Try your best to enter by the narrow door, because I tell you many will try to enter and will not succeed. Once the master of the house has got up and locked the door, you may find yourself knocking on the door and saying, Lord, open to us. But he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you will find yourself saying, We once ate and drank in your company, you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I do not know where you come from. Away from me, all you wicked men. Then there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves turned out, and yourselves turned outside. And men from east and west, from north and south, will come to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Yes, there are those now last who will be first, and those now first who will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Sir, will there be only a few saved? I suppose it's a question that we've all considered at some point in time. Is heaven well populated? And how many wicked souls tumble into hell? This is the question that's posed to Jesus. And do you notice that the Lord actually dodges the question? Will only a few be saved? The Lord responds, don't worry about it. Strive to get through the narrow gate. Really, if you think about it, it's a genius response. If Jesus responded with a percentage, yeah, 98% of people are saved. Well, our lives would basically become an effort not to be in the worst 2%. We wouldn't bother too much with God or faith or goodness. Just make sure you're not in the bottom 2% and you're golden. It's that old adage, to avoid being eaten by a lion, you don't have to be the fastest. You just have to make sure you're not the slowest. By the same token, Jesus could have said, well, yeah, it's hard to make the cut, and you know what? Most don't make it. Well, what would our response be then? We might just become obsessive about our rankings, living in a constant state of anxiety, counting our sins, and falling into an obsessive-compulsive kind of scrupulosity. Or alternatively, if very few do make the cut, we might also say, well, why bother? I probably won't make it. There's the wisdom in Jesus' response. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. It's narrow, so it needs striving. But anyone else's race is kind of irrelevant. You need to strive. You know, if we look at the history of the church, we've had a full spectrum of responses. Before the Second Vatican Council, certain countries and cultures were touched by something called Jansenism, which is a, a mistaken kind of spirituality and theology that focuses on how few will actually be saved. Interestingly, if you go through parts of France or Belgium or the Netherlands, you can see chapels and churches that have had a strong Jansenistic influence, and you can spot these churches by their crucifixes. 
Typically, when you see crucifixes, you see that Jesus has his arms out wide on the cross. But a Jansenistic-style crucifix will depict Jesus hanging from his arms, which are very close together above his head. And, And that's supposed to communicate that really only a few are saved. So struggle to strive to be between those narrow arms of Christ's cross, because most aren't going to make it. There are times when the emphasis has been on the severe. And in those cases, the focus falls on God's justice, and we start to fear him as judge. I reckon today, however, we're probably more familiar with the opposite extreme. Our preaching and spirituality is so focused on the love of God that we can't imagine it possible that everyone might not be saved. Everyone gets in. So don't worry about spiritual matters. It seems that the lowest common denominator for Christians these days is just be a good person. I hear it all the time. I don't go to Mass. Sure, I might not pray as much as I should, but... I'm a good person. As long as you don't kill anyone, you're all right with God. I don't need to worry too much about God because he loves me and he's not too fussed about what I do in the end anyway. So it doesn't matter too much whether I love him back. God can stay in the background. He doesn't demand my attention or my love. I think we can probably recognise elements of this attitude And these days, it's everywhere. But here's the thing. When this question is put to Jesus, he avoids both of these extremes. Sir, will there only be a few saved? He doesn't say many or few. He doesn't offer facts or figures or percentages. He says, try your best to enter through the narrow door. Don't worry about the numbers. Do your best. It's worthwhile to pause here for a moment to ask ourselves what it actually means to be saved. What are we talking about here? We could look at salvation in a restrictive sense and say, well, the ones who are saved are the ones who get over the threshold of heaven. But that doesn't really help us now. How are we to live today in order to be among those who are beckoned to enter into eternal life? Well, to be in heaven means to be in communion with God, who is love. And if we are to be fit for heaven, it means that right here, right now, we need to become fit for that communion with God. In other words, we need to conform ourselves to love. I need to strive to love God, and I need to strive to love others. When my life is conformed to love, I become like God, and I become capable of communion with him. But the project of living a life conformed to love isn't a striving that we do on our own. It's the grace of God that urges us on, that directs and guides us, that transforms us, so that we're not merely created in the image of God, 
but we are also becoming ever more his likeness. The goal then is that when we arrive at the pearly gates, we're conformed to love. We're in love with God. We're in communion with him. In other words, we're holy. We're saved. Okay, sure. How many will be saved? Forget about it. It's not your concern. Be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Be conformed. Be shaped by love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself, so that you may live for eternity in communion with God, who is love. So why does Jesus describe it as a narrow gate? Because it's hard. We mustn't think that Jesus' path of love is some kind of romantic sentimental, rose-coloured glasses way of looking at life. If you're in any doubts as to the demands of the Christian life, reread the Sermon on the Mount. Just pick up chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew's Gospel. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who persecute you. It's not those who say to me, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the person who does the will of my Father in heaven. If your virtue goes no deeper than the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not get into the kingdom of heaven. It's a narrow gate because it's a struggle. It's a striving for us to conform our lives to love. So what do we need? We need the sacraments. We need the scriptures. We need grace. We need an active spiritual life. We need to pray in order to become like Christ. And in the end, it's his work. When Jesus tells us that we should seek to enter through the narrow gate, he's not implying that the narrowness means that few really make the cut. We know that Jesus has come to save us. We know that God is merciful and just. But the gate is narrow because it's hard. It asks for discipline. Perseverance, commitment. And it's not for nothing that Jesus tells us that to be a follower of his, we need to take up our cross every day. It's indeed a cross. To conform ourselves according to love is to struggle against our tendency to prefer our selfish desires. But this is the path of salvation. This is the path that leads towards excellence of human life. So, how many will be saved? Wrong question, says Jesus. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive for holiness. Strive for a life that is conformed to God, who is love. You have my sacraments, you have my preaching, you have my grace, and when you need it, you have my forgiveness. But for heaven's sake, don't be satisfied with being half-hearted. We can imagine Jesus saying this to us. I'm not going to tell you it's a 50-50 chance of going to heaven and hell. Don't just look around you and make sure you're in the top half. Strive for excellence. Strive for holiness. Conform yourself to love and enter through the narrow gate. The gate that is me. 
Now, let me just open up a doctrinal parenthesis here for a second. If those who are truly conformed to love are the ones who are saved, we might start to become a little desperate about our chances because there's still plenty within me that's not converted, which needs to be ordered towards love of God and away from love of self. So what if I die before I'm perfect? It doesn't mean that heaven's closed to me. It means that I've still got some way to go in the way of perfection. Now that's the idea of purgatory. Purgatory is the school of love, where I might be purified, where I might come to be conformed to love, perfected, sanctified, and then finally made fit for God's holy presence. All right, close parenthesis. (laughs) So where does that leave us? How are we to understand this question about salvation? Do we need to fret about it? Or is it something that we shouldn't be too worried about at all? Well, it's important not to end up on either of the extremes. Otherwise, we'll wind up either with pathological scruples or with a spirit-suffocating indifference. So what's the proper response? Well, firstly... I mustn't be afraid. Many times Jesus tells us not to fear. And in the first reading from the prophet Isaiah today, we see how dearly God desires the salvation of all nations. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him may not be lost but may have eternal life. Jesus' mission is a mission of salvation. He's come that we may have life and have it to the full. And God is merciful when we fail. He knows the weakness of our sinful humanity. And he promises us forgiveness when we repent. So do not be afraid. We mustn't fall into the Jansenist trap that says few are saved, leading us to an obsessive concern for our salvation. God is merciful. And he desires our holiness. But... We mustn't use God's love and mercy as tacit permission not to repent. We mustn't fall into the all-too-pervasive trap of our contemporaries, thinking that God's love and mercy means he doesn't care about our holiness. No, says Jesus. You must try to make your way through the narrow gate to take up the cross and to be conformed to love. Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father.